This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is the Science Podcast for July 7th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, science writer Bridget Alex joins me to discuss busting the longstanding myth that at our deep past, only men hunted while women gathered. After that, we hunt for zero. Researcher Tanya Rusi discusses her work trying to constrain the electric dipole moment of the electron and why, if it were zero, it could be just as interesting as not zero to people studying big mysteries, like why matter and antimatter didn't wipe each other out at the beginning of the universe. Now we have Bridget Alex. She wrote a story this week on busting a long-standing myth. So before we bust it, let's get the myth out there. Bridget, what are we talking about here? So Man the Hunter is an idea that became popular among anthropologists in the early 20th century. According to this view, in human evolution, maybe over a million years ago, the males went out and hunted meat. And meanwhile, the females stayed closer to camp, gathering plants and taking care of babies. And both the pressures to make males good hunters, as well as all the benefits, the nutritional benefits of meat, gave rise to many of the traits that we humans are especially proud of. Walking on two legs, using tools, big brains, all of these evolutionary adaptations we see in humans came from hunting and particularly the males hunting. By the 1960s, there's this influential anthropology symposium called Man the Hunter and a book that came from it. But really, that, that was a turning point in that many scholars began challenging the general idea, the general view, and they looked at data showing how important plant foods are in human diets and therefore gathering things is important. But they also showed examples of women in living forager societies who were hunting frequently. So bring us up to today, few anthropologists would say in forager societies, so groups that get much of their food from wild plants and animals, Few anthropologists would say that men exclusively hunt animals and women exclusively gather berries or tubers or mushrooms or other non-moving things. You have a PhD in anthropology. Did you? Is this something that you encountered in your training? By the time you know, I was going through school, 
most anthropologists know that in forager societies, so groups that obtain most of their food from wild plants and animals, by the time I was a student, it was well known that, yeah, everyone participates in that work, no matter your age, no matter your gender, no matter whether you're a child or postmenopausal, if you're pregnant, whatever. But we, you know, still read those works and in many ways they still influence the way that anthropologists would think, the way that evolutionary biologists might think. Right. So what I found talking to different kinds of researchers is that, you know, there are certain ideas in the field that color your perception of data. And it it doesn't even matter if you're officially doing it on purpose. It's just something that kind of is a layer through which you see the world. And sometimes that's deep in the history of the field and you don't really realize it until you say, wait a minute, is that actually a true thing that happened? Yes, that's a perfect characterization of, of this haunting man, the hunter narrative in anthropology. Now we're going to talk about how I say officially busted, but really there's a, a recent study out that really puts this to rest. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this, this new work? Actually, you know, talking and knowing a lot of anthropologists for years, people were saying like, someone needs to do this. We should do this, but no one ever got around to doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a study led by Sarah Wall Scheffler who's a biological anthropologist at Seattle Pacific University and Charles University in the Czech Republic. And she gathered up a group of undergraduate students who had done well in her classes and said, let's revisit this myth that men are doing all the hunting (laughs) in diverse societies around the globe that get their food from wild plants and animals. And Basically, everyone has known there's been anecdotal evidence, all these reports of different places where scholars or travelers or, you know, card-carrying anthropologists visited some community that forages for their food. They would see women hunting, they'd report it, they'd write it down, but it was kind of dismissed as a one-off, an exception. They live in a special environmental context where it's okay for women to hunt or it's easy there because there's beaches nearby or something, Yeah, various things. But no one had really gone over everything that was known, all the information, all the observations, all the time someone had written about forager groups to kind of pull it together into one place and say, okay, globally, if we look at everything that's ever been written down about forager societies, how often are women hunting? And so when they did that, they found, well, most of the time, in fact, they found about nearly 80%. When you say 80%, you mean 80% of the groups that were included in this data set had examples of women hunting? Exactly. So there are some nice databases where anthropologists have pooled together all of the ethnographic records. So any sort of writings about diverse societies that have basically been compiled starting in about the 1800s up until present day. There's a few centuries of this ethnographic reports, which are basically written observations of different societies as they're living their life, doing their thing to try to give you a view of what it's like to be a member of that community or society or culture. And so there are these big databases where people are like, let's pull all these scattered writings together so that if you wanted to explore human diversity or like what traits are universal between all all societies we've ever seen or known, you could go into this database and look up things like 
I don't know, salt. How do different human groups get their salt? And you could search these ethnographies, do a, a query for salt and see like every time, you know, salt is mentioned. So they went to one of those and found 361 societies that they considered foragers. And from those 361, they found 63 where there was explicit discussion about hunting practices. So someone had taken the time to write down how do these people hunt in enough detail that we, we understand a, a bit about their hunting behaviors. And so 63, that's what we're working with, 63 societies that were observed sometime between the late 1800s and the 2010s. And of those 63, 50 of them had explicit mention about women hunting. What are some examples from the study of, of how women were involved in hunting? Yeah, an important takeaway is that the way women and are involved is very flexible and they're looking at societies on all continents except Antarctica and islands of the Pacific, basically every environment that humans could possibly live in. So of course the the creatures they're after vary from moose and bear to little scurrying rodents and fish. They found that women hunt animals of all different sizes. And they hunt with all sorts of different weapons, machete, bows and arrow, spears, nets, using dogs for hunting. And that varied, of course, across societies based on, you know, the technologies they like to use and the animals that are in the environment. But it also varied like within a given society. They found that women had a lot of flexibility to, you know, I like to hunt with my knife, so I'm going to hunt with my knife even though most people use bow and arrows here, or I like to hunt with these friends, I'm going to go out with these friends. I, you know, I really like your example that you talk about uh, archaeologists, if they find a weapon, they just, in a grave, they just assume that it's a man and that, you know, that's something that can be overturned with genetics. Yeah. And I think part of the motivation for the researchers sitting down to actually get this study done uh, was some recent archaeology papers where they did just that. There were burials where individual skeletons were found with either weapons of war, like a case of this famous Viking burial that it was sword and axe and shields and war horses from the 10th century and just always assumed to be this great warrior man. And then I think around 2017, it's at least genetically, it's a female. Yeah. And then Last year, a paper came out where at a site in the Andes, there's a 9,000-year-old burial with, with hunting gear, points made out of stone and other tools for butchering animals. And, you know, the genetics show that it's XX mm -hmm. in its uh, genome. And, and then they found that was the case for about 10 more burials from the Andes with weapons. So yeah, whether it's a warrior, whether it's a hunter, Anyone with weapons is just kind of de facto assumed to be a male. And that's how that man, the hunter myth continues to seep into scholarship, aside from how it's just widespread in the popular imagination. Yeah. Did this result surprise you as someone who has a background in anthropology? The result did not surprise me. And I don't think it would surprise most practicing anthropologists today. But no one had done it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just nice to have it gathered together. Everyone could tell you a few examples of like among the 
ACTA, who is a forager group in the Philippines, we know at least in the 1980s, women were hunting quite often. Everyone could give you examples, but nobody could tell you the prevalence and that it truly seems to be quite worldwide. An important part that some of the scholars I talked to about this article pointed out that a lot of times when we think of, well, man the hunter, right? First of all, it's it's not just man, but it's singular, right? We imagine this person going out with a rifle and, you know, shooting a deer and putting it on their wall, perhaps. But a lot of hunts, and particularly in the past, when there would have been megafauna, like woolly mammoths and other such things, they're going to be a, a group effort, right? Or, or if you're hunting bison and you need to chase them off a cliff or something, like you're not going to do that alone. So even how we define a hunter is a little misleading because in many cases, they're going out in groups. It's a whole team effort. And some of the great examples that are, are some of the studies they rely on in this. In Central Africa, one of the societies that they look at is the Aka. Everyone there hunts with these very large nets where they'll work as a group to chase out the animals, trap them in these nets, and then kill them. And in a study in the 90s where they went and systematically studied who was going out for hunts, how long were they taking, how many animals were they bringing back, there were boys and girls as young as five going on the hunts. There was a great grandmother who was at least 60 years old, who was one of the best hunters and like owned her own net, which was a big thing. There was a woman who continued hunting till her eighth month of pregnancy and then resumed one month after giving birth. So the whole females having babies thing isn't a problem for hunting. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. They did find some differences between the way men and women hunt. That's not to say hunting is the exact same regardless of your gender. And this, of course, varied society to society. But in a given society, they would often find that women had a little more flexibility in terms of which weapons they used, what animals they pursued, how often they hunted. And they tended to hunt in groups more. So either with male partners or other women. They often went with dogs more. No one's saying there's no differences between the way men and women hunt in all forager societies around the globe. They're just saying, yes, women hunt and they hunt often. And we can take this as evidence that in deep human history, there was this flexibility as well. Yes. And we didn't a million years ago establish different jobs based on your sex that you had to do and you had no choice. <laughs> right. All right. Well, that's it for me. Thank you so much, Bridget. Yeah, thank you. Bridget Alex is an editor for Sapiens Magazine, a science writer, and she has a PhD in biological anthropology and archaeology. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, researcher Tanya Rusi and I discuss a benchtop experiment that gives the Large Hadron Collider a run for its money. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. 
Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. One thing about making a science podcast like this one is that you find yourself having to summarize the most complex scientific concepts, entire disciplines, decades-long inquiries into tiny one-sentence summaries and headlines. And often you have to do that over and over again for the same topic because it's going to appear on the website, in the summary, all over the place. This is a question I have to ask myself, that we ask ourselves, when deciding what to include in the podcast. Can it be described to someone in a way that will make them interested and want to hear it? When it comes to the kind of paper we're talking about today, you know, where we're looking at features of the electron in order to answer questions about symmetry, which links up with the history of the universe and its creation, there really isn't like one tidy sentence that gets people the information they need in order to understand what this is about and whether or not they should listen. And, you know, I've tried my own version a few times. Obviously, you can hear it's like a list of nouns coming from me. But luckily, the researcher I talked to about this, Tanya Rusi, was more than ready to connect all the dots for us. Here she goes. One funny fact about physics is that most physicists believe that we can describe the entire universe from beginning to end, all the way back in time to the present with a single mathematical equation, <laughs> which might seem insane. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, that is genuinely one of the big projects of physicists. We believe that the language of the universe is mathematics and that we can describe everything with mathematics. This might sound crazy, but we've actually got pretty close. We've managed to describe everything we know of with only two equations. One covers gravity and one equation covers everything except gravity. <laughs> and we call that big equation, we call it the standard model because it's a mathematical model for the universe. We sort of finished roughly writing down the standard model in the 70s. And since then, we've been testing it to see if this kind of big theory of everything is right. Most of the time when we test it, it is right. And that's honestly totally astounding. But there are a few huge problems with the standard model. One of those problems is that the mathematics itself is fairly symmetric. And so what that means is that it predicts when our universe was born, that it had equal parts matter and antimatter in it. And that's the symmetry that's kind of embedded in it. What would have happened in those early moments of the universe is that matter and antimatter would have met each other. They would have annihilated and we would be only left with light. So if you fast forward to today. Uh, wait, we have more than light. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we certainly have more than light. <laughs> If the standard model were correct, we wouldn't be here. Right. So we're trying to answer something really fundamental, which is literally, why are we here? Why is there so much matter? And why did... Yeah, what's all this stuff? Yeah. Why did antimatter <laughs> destroy everything as soon as the universe was born? Right. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. Kind of a deep question. What that means kind of in practice is that we know that we need this symmetry violation in the standard model, but... The standard model is big and complicated because it literally describes the entire universe except gravity. And so we're not really sure where to put that asymmetry, where to put that symmetry breaking. 
you know, it could go in all sorts of different places. It could go in different amounts. And so to figure out how we fix the standard model to better describe our universe, we're hunting down a few leads. And so one of the leads that we're hunting down is the idea that a fundamental particle like the electron would itself be symmetry breaking in the way that we need it to be. So my experiment was looking for that symmetry violation in the electron. Now, I saw 10 years ago, the same kind of concept was published in science, but obviously things have changed since then. That was really a paper to basically set up the experimental system that you're using for this one? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And that was a big innovation for a fairly funny reason. When we say asymmetric, you can kind of think of it as the electron being a little bit oblong, like instead of perfectly spherical, like a sphere, no matter which way you rotate it, it looks the same. It's perfectly symmetric. But if you rotate an oval, you can tell you've rotated it. So if electron is oblong, you might have handles. You might be able to tell it has a shape other than a perfect sphere. The electron itself is charged, and how you would measure if it's a little bit oblong is you would put it in an electric field. And if it was a perfect sphere, it wouldn't matter if you rotated it in that electric field. But if it had a little bit of oblonginess to it, when you put it in an electric field, it would want to line up with the field. So it would have like a specific orientation that it likes. For this study, you didn't just use electrons, though. The big innovation that my boss, Eric Cornell, came up with 14 years ago was to use ions, which means that they're charged atoms or charged molecules. And you can't just stick those in an electric field because they're charged, they'll get pushed by the electric field. We wanted to use ions because they're easy to trap. One thing that's difficult with neutral particles is they're really hard to trap. You want to put them in a vacuum chamber, have nothing else interacting with them, but you can't just like hold them in place, right? Because there's nothing for them to be pushing against or nothing pulls on them. They're neutral. Exactly. Yeah. So the nice thing you can do with ions is they're very easy to trap. It's very easy to use electric and magnetic fields to trap a charged particle. But then you can't apply that additional electric field to polarize it. That's the word we use. Because you're just pushing it exactly. in space, right? Yeah. You're just going to push it out of whatever you're trying to hold it inside of. Exactly. Yeah. You would just push it out of the trap. So Eric's very ingenious insight was to use a rotating electric field. So instead of pushing it in one direction out of the trap, it's kind of like you have a rock on a string and you're swinging it around. So it's being polarized in the electric field how we want it to be, but it doesn't fly out of the trap. Instead, it moves in a circle. So that's the benchtop model here for your particle physics that you're doing. Yeah. So this is all happening on a lab bench, basically. I mean, I'm sure it's a very complicated device, but you're trying to learn in this device. You have a trapped ion in a polarized field, and you're trying to see how oblong its electrons are or if there is a dipole moment, this non-spherical shape. We're trying to see if the electrons inside of the molecule that we have trapped respond to the electric field in a way that would show their energy levels shifting around. So if the electrons were perfectly round and had no electric dipole moment, when we put them in the electric field, we wouldn't see a response due to the roundness. We would see other things that the electric field leads to, but we wouldn't see a response due to the roundness of the electron. But if the electrons are a little bit oblong, they'll want to line up and lock onto the field, and that will affect the energy levels of the molecule that we're looking at. So we actually just 
perform spectroscopy on the molecules, which is just measuring energy levels in a molecule. And we see with the electric field on or off or with the electric field pointed one way or the other, if those energy levels show a little shift that's due to the roundness or the not roundness. So you can have kind of two answers here. It can be zero or it can be a value. Yeah. And either way, it tells you something about the world and the history of the universe and a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of interesting. A lot of people are like, oh, you're measuring zero? Like, why would you do that? <laughs> You're like, I'm really excited about zero. That's, that's <laughs> Yeah, precisely. I'm like, well, did you consider that I'm a huge nerd? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give the game away here and say that you actually did kind of find zero, right? At least a much more precise measurement of something that might be zero. Yeah, we basically, we did find zero up to our precision level, which might seem like, oh gosh, like what a silly and useless result. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not because what's happening is we have this standard model, that big mathematical equation that we need to fix. And we have a lot of people working on the other side, people who basically do mathematics all day, working on making new versions of the standard model. We call it beyond standard model physics. And they're writing down new theories of everything that have this extra symmetry violation that we need. But we don't know which of those new theories is right. And so what my experiment does when it measures zero, it says, unfortunately, to probably dozens of people, (laughs) hey, um, your theory's wrong because it predicted that the electron would be oblong within our measurement precision. And we measured that it isn't. Right. So sorry. Go put that asymmetry somewhere else. It's not in the electron. (laughs) Yeah. Or it's at least not in the electron at that amount. Right. It might seem like kind of cruel or mean, but it's it's good. And the theorists love it because they need constraints. Like they have this huge, massive, under-constrained problem. And experiments like mine give them the constraints they need to zero in on the actual truth. And the new, one day we will find the new standard model that better matches our reality. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is next for this area? Like, do you feel like you could tweak the experiment that you did here to, you know, even constrain this more? Is that one of the things on your plate? Totally. Yeah. So these experiments, as I mentioned, have been going on for a long time and we have constrained this particular measurement orders of magnitude and orders of magnitude and orders of magnitude over the years eventually we will get as precise as what the standard model predicts. And hopefully between now and then we'll measure not zero, which will both contradict the standard model and confirm a new theory. So the goal is to keep adding orders of magnitude of precision until we find that non-zero measurement. And is that something you can do on the bench top? I keep saying that because, you know, this is something that people are doing with colliders as well, like billion dollar instruments. And this is something that I don't know how much it costs, but at least it's easily contained in a small building. Totally. Yeah. And that's actually a great question because we have exceeded the reach of the Large Hadron Collider with our experiment. So we are probing energy scales. The energy scales of the new particles are beyond what the Large Hadron Collider can reach. And particle accelerators obviously are amazing and important but they're not really going to be extending their reach 
anytime soon that I know of. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was like, if you say we have to build another one, you're going to have to wait some decades. Yeah, and it'll be like billions and billions of dollars. It's just technologically incredibly difficult to expand the reach of colliders. And so benchtop experiments like ours might be a really important path forward for questions like this, where we need to look for higher energy particles, but we can't do it with an accelerator. So we need these like very specific benchtop experiments. So when you talk about finding particles with the setup you have here, how does that work? Yeah, this this is a bit of a deep cut, but basically. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for warning me. So basically, I have been saying that the electron itself will have some symmetry violation in its shape, essentially, right? Instead of being perfectly spherical, it will be oblong. What's interesting and maybe a deep cut about physics is that that symmetry violation actually comes from interactions with vacuum fluctuations of fields from brand new particles at really high energies. So so that's it's hard to say that in an understandable way, but I get it because I read yeah. it already. But let me <laughs> let me try. So basically, if we do see this asymmetry, if we do see this happening, it's not just because this is the natural state of electrons. It's because something else is going on that we can't detect. The electron is detecting it for us and showing it as like a little piece of asymmetry. And this is like a little bit like a probe of mystery particles. And you can kind of tweak these benchtop experiments to like further explore that, which everyone wants more particles, I think. So that's great news. (laughs) Yes, that's very well put. Yeah. And for the asymmetry to be induced in the electron, we need new particles that we don't know of yet that are at very high energies. And those energies are beyond the reach of things like the Large Hadron Collider. Tanya, thank you so much for talking with me. My pleasure. Tanya Rusi recently completed her PhD in quantum physics at the University of Colorado Boulder. You can find a link to the paper we discussed and a beautiful illustration on the cover at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.